let's get into Second Peter chapter 1. And again, just as a bit of an intro, we see Peter's writing this second letter, ultimately to reveal truth and to defend the truth. You see, what was happening in this time right now, and the context really for Peter writing this, as is going to come out loud and clear in this letter, is that Peter's writing to defend against false teachers that are creeping into the church with a a erroneous teaching, a false doctrine that was looking to twist the gospel message ultimately for their own personal gain. Listen, it was happening all the way back at the beginning of the church and it still continues to happen among people that are looking to use the gospel and abuse God's people for their own personal gain and how we need to be discerning and how we need to be sure that we are standing in the truth, that we know the truth. Listen, when, when bankers are being educated how to, how to deal with and know counterfeit, they don't get shoved a bunch of counterfeit money in their face and, so, and, and told, study this money. Figure out what makes this counterfeit. No, what they are given is the real, true money. And they study and they know this so that when they feel something that's counterfeit, they know exactly that's not real currency. And how we need to be people that are standing in the word of God and knowing the truth so that when the lie comes, we know right away, oh, that's, that doesn't line up with what God's word says. So this is what Peter's seeking to do, to encourage people to remain in the truth, to stay in the truth, and to know the truth. The second letter, Peter, interestingly, has been brought into question probably more than any other New Testament writing. Brought into question as to the um, authorship. People questioning that, did Peter really write this? Uh, many people wondered if this was really to be a part of the canon of scripture. And so it's been brought into great question. Interestingly, again, Peter wrote this letter to deal with the dangers outside the church. Sorry, he wrote his first letter to deal with the dangers outside the church, right? People going through suffering and persecution, But in the second letter, he's not writing to deal with the dangers outside the church. The dangers, however, that are inside the church is why Peter's writing 2 Peter here. And it's no wonder that this book has been attacked the way it has because Peter was hitting the enemy right between the eyes. He's confronting them head on. And and he was causing Christians to be alert and ready for the devil's schemes of leading them astray. See, People in that day were all trying to claim fake news. This, this letter is not true. This is not legit. It's fake news. And they're doing so to kind of cover their own hide. However, Peter had it right. Peter was bringing the genuine and the true. So they tried to undermine his authorship and the legitimacy of this book. So because of this content, this book stands as a particularly important book for us today as we seek to know Jesus more and be prepared to stand against our enemy and his tactics. As Peter wrote at the end of his first letter, as we looked at last week, that the, our enemy, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's on the prowl. And we need to be ready to stand against his tactics. We don't need to study his methods We just simply need to know the truth and to stand in the truth. So this becomes really Peter's farewell letter as well. Just as 2 Timothy is Paul's swan song, 2 Peter is Peter's farewell letter. He seems to know that his life is coming to a quick end. Look at in verse 14 of chapter 1. 
Peter says, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. So Peter seems to know he's, he, his life is coming to an end. We know that Peter eventually uh, was martyred under the hands of or, or under the reign of Nero. Many believe he was, he was hung upside down. He didn't feel he was worthy to be crucified or killed the same way that his savior was killed and, and martyred. So he decided to be or asked to be crucified upside down. And so Peter most likely was, was um, martyred around 67 AD, somewhere around there. Most likely he wrote this letter around 66 AD. So Peter here is writing again to just encourage his readers to continue on the faith, to keep growing. Because God has invited us in, as we'll see here this morning, he's invited us in to be partakers of the divine nature. That's speaking of that eternal life and the love of God that we receive in Christ. So this letter is being written to the same group of believers that he wrote in the first letter, these Christians that have been scattered abroad. They're living around Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. They've been kind of viewed as those in exile, right? Uh, because they've been scattered around because of persecution and suffering. So Peter's writing to, again, encourage them. And he, and he says in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. So he's saying, listen, I wrote to you once, I'm going to write to you again. And I'm going to just remind you of these things here. It's important for us, isn't it, to be reminded? Because we oftentimes forget about what we read last week. Most of us can say we probably forget about what we read about this morning. So we need to be reminded, and Peter's going to stir up their minds by, by remembrance here and bringing these things to the forefront once again. So here's an outline of what we're going to be looking at as we spend some time in 2 Peter. Going through the whole book, it divides itself up into these three chapters neatly. And we see in chapter 1, the faithful progress in the truth. Chapter 2, we see false prophets against the truth. And then in chapter 3, future predictions of the truth. So that's what we're going to be looking at as we go through 2 Peter. But today... Let's break it down. We're going to be covering just those first four verses. And we're going to be looking at this, the preciousness of our faith, the power, uh, uh, the power in our faith, verse 3, and then the promises from our faith. All right? The preciousness of our faith, the power in our faith, and the promises from our faith. So look at chapter 1. It says right there, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained um, like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Peter, notice this here. Simon Peter, first of all, identifies himself as a bondservant. He doesn't say, oh man, I used to be this way, but now I'm an apostle, right? I mean, if it was me, I would have been tempted to say, listen, I'm going to jump right on the apostle card. I'm going to let people know that I've got some authority i've got a calling from that's what an apostle was one that was sent out one that was a delegate he was going on the authority of those that were calling him peter had that authority of christ he was called by christ but peter doesn't start there he says i'm a bond servant you see peter recognized that his true position before the lord is that of a servant and not just a servant but a bond servant now you might say what's the difference well, remember back in the Old Testament, we read about when the law was given, it tells us in Exodus chapter 21, 
he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go free and pay nothing. So God allowed in, in, this, in this way of just regulating servanthood. A lot of people like to say, oh, you know, the Bible was all about inventing slaves and brought slavery into the world. No, God liked to kind of limit that and provide parameters around it because it was something that was just a, a, a work of humanity to some degree. So God gives some parameters for that. And then he says, in, as they're going to go free, reading on in Exodus 21, verse 5 to 6, but if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door, to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. That's what a bondservant was. A bondservant was a person that said, you know what? Though I am free to be free, I'm going to stay and serve my master because I've got a good, I love my master. He's a good master. And I want to devote my life to serving him. That's what a bondservant was. And it was marked by that piercing in his ear. And so Peter's identifying himself that way. He says, listen, I am free, but I'm free to serve Christ. And I know that he is a good master. There's nothing better that I can find myself doing in this life than to serve my Lord. And that's what Peter was choosing and deciding to do. Listen, Peter wasn't always the guy that was ready to say and claim to be a servant. In fact, Peter was oftentimes the guy that was seeking to rise above everybody else and show how much better he was than everybody else, wasn't he, right? He's always the guy fighting to be the one that's prominent. But the Lord got a hold of his heart. Peter began to change. Peter began to realize that he is nothing apart from Christ. And he wants to remain in Christ and, and just faithfully serve him. He, he said at the end of First uh, Peter chapter 5, right, that he says, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So Peter began to recognize the importance of walking in humility, serving one another because God resists the proud but he gives grace to the humble. Listen, we must realize and remember that before we can do anything great for God, the greatness is not in ourselves, but it's in a great God. So Peter isn't placing his identity in his apostleship. He's not flexing his muscles of authority. He's coming in humility. See, when it comes to God's economy, your identity is less in what you do and more in who you are. How do you live your life? Peter lived his life as a servant, a bond servant. His identity wasn't in, listen, I'm an apostle. So follow me, listen to me, do what I say. Now his identity was more in who he was. He was and in service, just like his Savior did. So Peter states that he's writing to all those who have obtained like precious faith. Now remember, Peter's writing to those that have felt the fires of persecution and suffering, but it reminds them that they have everything that he has. I love that. They're not being punished for lack of faith. They're being encouraged because they have a precious faith. And this precious faith is just like what Peter and the apostles have obtained. Do you see that there in verse 1? To those who have obtained like precious faith with us. Peter's not saying, listen, we're more special because we're apostles. And maybe one day you can achieve to the faith that we have. He says, no, you've already obtained like precious faith with us. They didn't have a more special faith. They didn't have a more prominent faith. They didn't have a, you know, get out of jail free card kind of faith. No, 
they had a same faith because it was a faith placed in the same God, in one Lord, in, in one Savior. It's the faith that brings us together on common ground here. And notice, it does so because it's a faith that comes how? Look at verse 1, the end of verse 1. Like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. This faith comes through the righteousness of God. In other words, it's not a faith that, that we develop in ourselves because of our goodness and righteousness. So oftentimes we think we're coming to God based on what we can bring our own goodness and righteousness. But the Bible says that our righteousness is as what? Filthy rags. In other words, we've got squat. We've got nothing that we can bring to the Lord. We don't get saved. We don't have a faith that's resting in ourselves, but resting in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So it's a faith that's precious because it's not dependent on us. It's not dependent on our works. It's not dependent on our performance. Aren't you glad for that? This is a faith that doesn't falter in my weakness because it's based on the righteousness of Jesus. So it's a like precious faith that we all enjoy together. I'm so glad for that. Now before moving on to verse 2, look at what Peter writes at the end of verse 1 because we have a very strong declaration here of the deity of Christ. The grammar here clearly indicates that, that God and Savior notice the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You can read that in one of two ways. You can say it's speaking of God and then Jesus. But the grammar clearly indicates that God and Savior are one person here, not two. This, this passage ranks with the great Christological passages of the New Testament, which plainly teach that Jesus Christ is co-equal in nature with God the Father, that he is God. Period. Plain and simple. That Jesus Christ is not a lesser God. He's not a created God. He is God. And they are one. Passages like Matthew 16, verse 16, John 1, 1, John 20, verse 28, Titus chapter 2, verse 13, all reveal the deity of Christ. Many like to differentiate between Jesus and God. The cults all make Jesus less than divine. But Peter very accurately declares here that Jesus is indeed God. Make no mistake on that. And then, because of this precious faith, look at verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Peter desires that this grace and peace would be known and experienced by all believers. And not only that this grace and peace would be known, but that it would be multiplied. That word multiplied is the Greek word plethuno. It's where we get our word plethora, right? Whenever I think of the word plethora, I think of that great classic movie, The Three Amigos. Would you say I have a plethora of piñatas? Okay, we're not going to get into that, but those of you that know Three Amigos... You're laughing along with me. Plethora. And so that's the idea is that we have a, a multiple of grace and peace that's being provided and supplied for us. It's, it's without number. It doesn't run out. And this grace and peace will be multiplied to you in one way. In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This grace doesn't come about by earning it. This peace isn't provided through your good works, my friends. It's found solely in the knowledge of God. Now, that word knowledge becomes a very popular and prominent word in 2 Peter. It's used seven times in just these three chapters. Peter, of this knowledge of Jesus. As was said earlier, Peter needed to combat these false teachers that were creeping into the church, these heresies 
that were being brought in and corrupting the gospel. From its earliest days, the church was been, has been born in controversy. Now, at first, it was the Judaizers that were claiming, well, you can have Christ, but you also need to follow and observe the law. So they were adding to it. It became a legalistic problem. Then there was the denial of just even the literal resurrection of the body by some in the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 15, Peter, Paul had a, had a talk about that. And then there was also the arising now in this setting and in this time frame, this arising of the corruptible beginnings of Gnosticism, antinomianism, which is just, you know, because of the grace of God, it just, it just allows us to kind of do what we want. But this Gnosticism, there's these false doctrines being um, promoted and taught that basically said, you need to attain to this higher level of understanding. It's kind of like a, a, a secret knowledge. That very term Gnosticism comes from the, the word to know in the Greek, which is gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, to know. And so Gnosticism was achieving and claiming this kind of higher esoteric kind of knowledge that only few could attain to. And in this knowledge, it just allowed you to kind of do what you wanted to because you were so spiritual. You were there. You've arrived. You could just kind of do what you want. Now, sin was not an issue any longer. Or committing sin didn't have any kind of weight any longer in your life. And so we see many um, writers in the New Testament combating this. We see it in, in Peter here, First and Second Peter. We see it in First, Second, and Third John. And we see it in Jude, writing to combat these kinds of errors. Now, no doubt Peter... Would have, combating, would have been combating these false teachers that, that came in with a view that they had reached this higher knowledge, a greater level of understanding. That was the approach and thinking of Gnosticism. They thought they had, had reached a superior level over others through this knowledge, oftentimes a secret knowledge. But Peter wants his readers to know this, that you can gain and receive and walk in this grace and peace of the Lord through the knowledge of God. And of Jesus our Lord. It's not found in some secret understanding. It's found in just simply knowing God. In fact, John 17 verse 3 says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. That's eternal life, to know God. And Jesus whom you sent. So Peter's going to be dealing with this as we go through and, and mentioning this knowledge many times. Now, moving on to our second point. We've seen the preciousness of our faith. Now we see the the power in our faith. Look at verse 3. As his divine power is given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. See, understand something. God has given us everything we need. The Gnostics, they wanted people to think that they were missing something. That people needed to reach to a higher level of understanding. It's like the worldly wisdom of our day where people are trying to tap into some secret kind of nirvana. But Peter says that God is, in his divine power, has given us. He has given us. He said, not will give us, but rather, as his divine power has given In other words, already given to you everything that you need to attain it to this life in Christ. See, when you were born, guess what? 
Everything you needed to live life was already there in that little body of yours. Oh, you weren't all that you were going to be. No, you need to grow into that. But everything you needed was right there. So too, when we come to Christ, everything we need to attain to this life of godliness has already been given to us. But what we need to do is just simply grow. And Peter's been talking about that in 1 Peter. He's going to talk about that here in 2 Peter, about just growing in him, knowing him more, learning of him each day. How do you grow in him? Or how do you grow in these things? It's through the knowledge of God. Get in the word of God and you will grow in him and know him more. That's the importance of the word. The word of God is not some academic study we do. This is not some religious duty we fulfill. Getting in the word of God is so we might know God and grow in the understanding that causes us to indeed grow in him. That's the key and the importance of it, my friends. If you're not having just that regular, I'd say daily time in God's word, Oh man, schedule that into your day. Make that a part of your your daily routine where you are in the word of God. Don't do it just to fulfill some religious duty. You'll get nothing out of it. Do it because you're meeting with the living God who's giving us a living word that we might grow in it and know him more. This is just the means to an end. And that is to know the Lord. And there's something wonderful that happens as you sit down with the word of God Understand that you are communing with God. He's speaking to you and you get to speak to him as you look into his good and faithful word. Listen, we don't need any new revelation. We don't need the latest fad, the latest hot spot to go to. We just need the word of God, which reveals to us Jesus Christ and instructs us how to have that relationship with him and how to keep growing in him. Paul similarly combated this erroneous teaching of Gnosticism when he wrote Colossians. And he wrote there in Colossians 2, verse 9 and 10, For in him, Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of, the princip- of all principality and power. Do you hear that? You're complete in him. You don't need something more. It's already there for you. Just keep growing in it. Keep knowing God. Keep knowing Jesus. Get into the word of God. So Peter says that God has now just called us to this very thing. He's called us. Notice this at the end of verse 3. He's called us by glory and virtue. And more so, it's implied that he's called us by his glory and virtue. It's by his goodness. It's, it's, for, it's by and for his glory that he's called us and invited us in to receive of his divine power. That gives us everything that pertains to life and godliness. But wait, there's more. Don't stop now. Look at verse 4. We look at the promises now from our faith. Verse 4, by which, he's just continuing on this thought, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. See this? Word precious was a, a favorite of Peter's. He uses this oftentimes. He talks about the precious blood of Jesus in, in 1 Peter 1 9. He talks about the precious Savior, 1 Peter 2 7. This precious faith in chapter 1, verse 1 of 2 Peter. And now we see that we've been given precious promises here in verse 4. Precious promises. Where precious speaks of that which is beyond calculation. It's just so wonderful, so, so numerous. It's precious. I can't 
I can't even really fully comprehend and weigh the preciousness of these things. So Peter talks about this precious faith and now the promises from our faith. And Peter says that it's through these precious promises that we can be partakers of the divine nature. Oh, that sounds almost too good to be true, doesn't it? It almost sounds new agey. Partakers of his divine nature, you're thinking, how does that work? How can that be so? What is Peter getting at here? Well, Peter's saying that we've been given many promises from God by which we may be assured now that we're his. That's ultimately what we're getting at. Promises that they're going to they're gonna deliver on. Despite what you do. When somebody says, I promise you're going to do this, it's not depending on what you're doing. It's something they are... Are, are stating a surety that they are going to deliver. And God, who says, who cannot lie, when he makes a promise, you know, it's going to, he's going to deliver on it. These are precious promises because they're promises that we can stand firm on and secure in. Ultimately, these precious promises are all connected to the life that he has for you and in or for you, in and through his son, Jesus Christ. That's what these promises all ultimately are linked to. And it's that relationship with him, that life in him, by which you might know you're truly his child. And as you realize that, you recognize, I've partaken of that divine nature. You see, God has saved us, and he's called us so that we might be conformed to the image of his son, Romans 8 verse 29 says that. That we might be conformed to the image of his son. So divine nature is at work. We're partakers of it, conforming us, making us more like his son. And he's promised us his Holy Spirit to indwell within us that gives to us the power to live this life. That's how Peter came to realize this. I mean, Peter is one moment bumbling along, making mistakes. And then remember what Jesus says in Acts 1.8, that you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then you'll be my witnesses. And Peter wasn't he the guy that stands up there in Acts chapter 2 and faithfully proclaims this powerful message of the cross and Christ crucified but risen again and life that we have in him now. Peter understood this power at work, the fulfillment of the promise of the Holy Spirit. And we see in Philippians 1.6 that this work that Jesus has begun, he'll be faithful to, to complete it till the day of Jesus Christ. So we have the expectation of eternal life and being partakers now of his divine nature. Listen, we don't have to live any longer to the pattern of this world and and being subject to the lusts of the world. That's what what Peter says, having escaped now the corruption that is in the world to us. You see, we no longer have to be living living and and pulled along by that sinful nature. We have Christ in us. And and notice what Colossians 1.27 says, to them God will to make known what are the riches of the glory to this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So we no longer need to be living with our flesh being pulled into the corruptions of the world. We have Christ in us. We have a new nature at work. We have a divine nature at work in us by which these precious promises are being fulfilled, carried out, by which God will be faithful to deliver on. So we see we have a precious faith, a powerful faith, and a promise from our faith. So let God continue to grow you 
and establish you in him that you would walk now in that knowledge of him and grow in his grace and peace. All right? We're going to prepare now for communion. If you don't already, would you just right now go and and grab something that you can partake of communion with, whether that's just a piece of bread or a cracker, uh, a cup of anything. And, And we're going to just watch a quick video here in preparation for communion. And then Pastor Randy and I will be here with you to answer some questions and lead in communion.